Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. And I'm Tyler Orton. The Site C Dam, it's had a long history of controversy ranging from issues over Indigenous consultation to concerns over the basic economics of this entire project. And on today's show, author Sarah Cox, she discusses her new book, Breaching the Peace, which chronicles the tumultuous history of the Site C Dam. Later on, uh, PwC Canada's Kate Ferber is going to discuss a new report examining Generation, do you think, is it Z or Z? I say Z because I'm Canadian. Yeah, I think same. Generation Z shopping trends and how technology is reshaping how retailers operate. And Royal LePage CEO Phil Soper is going to be with us. He's going to discuss whether falling sales in Metro Vancouver's luxury real estate market are going to have really any impact on the region's prices. But first up is author Sarah Cox. BC Premier John Horgan, he announced in December that his government was approving the completion of the Site C Dam, but he was doing so with, quote-unquote, a heavy heart. The project's costs have spiked up to $10.7 billion over the course of its lifespan, but cancelling the project would have cost $4 billion. Meanwhile, Site C has been hammered by concerns over its environmental impact and Indigenous consultation. Our next guest has been chronicling the tumultuous history of Site C in her new book, Breaching the Peace. I'd like to welcome to the show from Victoria, author and journalist Sarah Cox. Sarah, thanks for joining us on Business in Vancouver. Thanks very much for having me. So the the legacy. Where, where do you start? Of Site C <laughs> well, let, let's start with maybe the future, because I, I just wonder, Kirk and Sarah, how this is going to evolve over the decades of it, its coming history when this thing is finally completed. And I, I just look at electricity prices. They're going to be going up and up and up. And we wonder what we get out of this project, Sarah. Well, that is something that the book looks at. I spent uh, the better part of a year and a half looking into exactly uh, those issues. And one thing that I chronicle in the book is that there is no business case for Site C. Um, and there has never been a business case for Site C. And that the decision to proceed with construction of the dam has been a political decision every step of the way. You saw that when uh, the former Liberal government decided to go ahead with the project and they changed the law to remove uh, the independent BC Utilities Commission from determining whether or not the project was in the public interest. And then you saw that again last fall with the NDP government, which when they did refer the project for a fast-tracked review to the BC Utilities Commission, they did not charge the BC Utilities Commission with making a recommendation on whether or not the project would proceed. So if you look at what is happening in two other Canadian provinces where large dams are under construction, in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador and in Manitoba, where large dams are a few years uh, ahead of Site C in terms of construction, in in Newfoundland there's um, an, an inquiry going on right now into what went wrong and why the project proceeded because that project is now at 12.7 billion. As with Site C, there's nobody to buy the power and um, households in Newfoundland and Labrador are now stuck with an average $1,800 increase annually on their hydro bills. Much the same thing is taking place in Manitoba where people are calling for cancellation of construction uh, even though the cost is now at 4 to $4.5 billion in sunk costs. 
Yeah. And by deciding to continue with the project in December, um, the NDP basically pushed that um, bill, the, uh, the increase on our hydro bills, into the future. So it was very much a political decision. Yeah, I want to pick up on the politics of this, Sarah, because I think we were all uh, we were all seized with this decision that uh, the new Horgan government was uh, was had thrust upon it. If if the Liberals were prepared to proceed with the project, why do you think the NDP didn't take the opportunity to stop it? Well, when you look at what happened, the NDP were under. Uh, some pressure from construction trade unions who have donated very generously to the party over the years. And the construction trade unions were virtually shut out of the Site C worksite by the former uh, Liberal government, and they, they wanted in. So the NDP had, had that pressure. And they were also faced with um, a difficult decision because they had campaigned on affordability. And um, there is no doubt that there would have been some slight increase on hydro bills if the dam had been cancelled. And I should say that it's actually uh, it was actually about $2 billion in sunk costs last fall. The other uh, $1.8 billion came uh, from BC Hydro saying that it would cost $1.8 billion to remediate uh, the area that has been disturbed so far. And that was uh, a figure that was greatly contested. So the, and again, like I spoke to four project financing experts who all said that uh, the NDP's claimed that there would be an immediate 12% increase in hydro bills was um, absolute nonsense. And that that is not the standard practice that utilities across North America would follow in the event that a project is, is canceled and uh, which happens, uh, it, it happens not infrequently. So there's a big question mark there because we've never seen the figures behind that claim that cancelling the project would have led to an immediate 12% um, increase on hydro bills. And again, that figure is greatly disputed. Where we're going to see the increase on hydro bills is if Site C continues and when the energy comes online, uh, supposedly in uh, 2024, so about uh, five or six years down the road. And again, we only have to look east to see what's happening in other provinces to get a flavor for what we might be faced with here in British Columbia. So is it a matter in some cases for the politicians to choose the least um, problematic economic model? Well, absolutely, because um, the way that our political system works is that the government in power is very focused on the short term. They're elected, they're focused on the term for which they are elected, which in the NDP's case, people are saying could be as short as a year and a half, three years, four years, um, if we stick with the uh, election cycle. And, and political parties are very rarely thinking long term. You talk a lot about the macro issues here, but you also speak to people that are being affected by this in their homes, the, the, the farmers, as well as just indigenous people as well. What is the sense that you get from the community if we go further north, get out of Metro Vancouver, and look at the impact this is going to be having on people for decades? Yes, I see would have an absolutely devastating impact on the Peace River Valley community, both on the settler community and on First Nations. The, and it's very, very much out of sight and out of mind for British Columbians because it's so far away from where most of us live. 
Um, but when you go in there and you talk to people, and, and this book is very much um, a book about people as much as it is a book about policy, you start to get an idea of what would be lost to Site C, both in terms of the human cost uh, and the environmental cost. And in terms of the human cost, um, the global human rights group Amnesty International has chosen Site C as one of their resource projects to focus on, and that's because Site C violates human rights. It does not begin to meet international standards for the justification of forced evictions for the farmers uh, who will lose their homes and property, and some of whom who already have. And um, it's, um, the courts have not yet determined whether or not Site C violates treaty rights. Yeah. And the project is continuing, even though the federal and provincial governments have pledged to uphold the United Nations Declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples. Yeah. What, what, do you, what do you what do you Sorry, think the court? But what do you think the courts um, are going to um, resolve in this case around indigenous consultation? What, how how might Site C be historic that way? Well, the first um, two court cases asking the question of whether or not Site C and in one case other industrial projects in the Northeast violate treaty rights are going to be heard starting this July. One is uh, an action launched by the West Moberly First Nations and the Prophet River First Nation that uh, claims that Site C infringes on their treaty rights. And the second is um, an action launched by the Blueberry River First Nations which um, claims that cites the cumulative impact of resource projects in their traditional territory, including Site C, mean that members can no longer engage in traditional practices. Both of those were, will be heard starting in July, and anything, uh, anything could happen. There could be injunctions issued. There could be, um, it could be ruled that a whole new process for issuing permits might happen, and the whole project could be stopped. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is it possible that Site C still can be stopped? I think so very much. I think there's a few things that could stop it. One would be these court cases. Uh, the second would be uh, the cost continuing to increase. And we saw in the fall the announcement that Site C had increased by another $2 billion. It did start as a $6.6 billion project, so it's now $4 billion higher than that. And then there is a question about um, additional costs that have been incurred since uh, the public was privy to the details last fall. And uh, we simply don't know because there's no independent scrutiny of this project right now. And there's very little information for the public about what is going on. So we don't know whether more costs have been incurred over the $10.7 billion. Will this be a bit of a case study for future governments in British Columbia? It doesn't matter the political stripe here, but how future governments approach large infrastructure projects like this in almost like a way not to go out doing things just from an economic standpoint, a consultation standpoint, etc.? Um, definitely. I mean, there's also changes afoot in both the provincial environmental assessment process and the federal environmental assessment process that could affect that. But in the case of Site C, we've seen a project uh, blast ahead, even though there is no need uh, for the electricity, even though there are no export contracts for the power, even though 
uh, when, if and when the power comes online, it will be sold uh, at far less than it costs to produce it. So we've seen the project go ahead, and um, this should be um, a big red flag uh, for future such projects. Have you been able, in the course of writing the book, to reconcile in your own mind, Sarah, on why the decision was made in the first place? I spent a lot of time looking into that and talking to people about that, energy experts and Crown Corporation experts. Um, When you go back and rewind to when um, former Premier Gordon Campbell announced in in 2010 that the project would proceed to regulatory review, at that time, uh, Premier Campbell was very focused on uh, dealing with global warming. And um, Site C was originally posited as a, a project that would provide clean energy and help jurisdictions like California ratchet down their greenhouse gas emissions. But it turned out that Site C did not meet California's green energy standards. There still is no uh, buyer for the power, and yet it was propelled along as a, a clean energy solution when the door at the same time was shut to other clean energy solutions such as wind and geothermal and solar and pump storage hydro. So again, it was part of that, uh, you know, in many ways laudable attempt to deal with, with global warming and provide clean energy. And then when the Christie Clark government decided, made the final decision to go ahead with the project, that was made with um, an election on the horizon and a great pressing need to demonstrate that jobs had been created and particularly jobs outside the urban areas. And when I looked into all the reasons why the project was put forward at that time, that kept emerging as a major reason why the project was put forward at that time and why it was approved in the in the context that we don't need the energy. Because Energy demand in BC has been stagnant since 2005. As hydro rates go up, which they recently have, even without Site C on the books, demand goes down. We have so much extra power in BC right now that we're paying independent power producers millions of dollars a year not to produce power. BC Hydro has just proposed changing the rules for people who want to install solar on their homes so that they would no longer buy back the excess power. And that all speaks to the fact that we don't need Site C and that even if we do need more clean power in the future, there are cheaper and far more nimble ways to get it through Mm. sources such as wind and geothermal. Well, uh, Sarah, a a lot for us to bake on here, and I I think uh, a lot of BC school children will be learning about this in decades to come and and just wondering about how we got to this point. And I hope that a lot of them will be able to look back into your book and look at the history that you've been chronicling here. And I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. That's Sarah Cox. She's the author of Breaching the Peace. You're listening to Business in Vancouver or Business in Vancouver today. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Kirk LaPointe. PwC's Kate Ferber is going to join us next. She's going to talk about how technology is reshaping how retailers operate. (music) 
Certainly a lot of anxiety persists over how artificial intelligence is changing the workforce, but what about the way that AI and other technologies are reshaping the way that we shop? PwC Canada's latest Consumer Insights report examines how everything from AI to the in-store experience is just changing our expectations even when shopping online. So one particular insight that caught my eyeball here, Kirk, is that Gen Z they actually prefer to shop in store versus online, which is kind of surprising to me. Yeah, I got to test that one. Okay, okay. <laughs> we'll get into it in just a moment here because uh, with us today, it's Kate Ferber. She's on the show here. Uh, she is the leader of retail and consumer practices in British Columbia with PwC Canada. Kate, great to talk to you once again. Yeah, thanks very much, Tyler, for having me on. So these Generation Z kids, you know, we think that they're technologically savvy, but why is it that maybe they seem to prefer to go in stores versus just, you know, grabbing their phones and clicking yes on Amazon the way that maybe I do quite a bit? Yeah, it's it's a it's a good question, and um, just to jump back to our survey, what we uh, what we've done this time is we surveyed a thousand consumers across Canada, really around again their shopping habits, how they like to shop, what they like to buy, and when they like to buy, and one of those findings was Generation Z prefer to actually spend more time in store than online, um, and it was interesting. It was really around the experience, so that. That 18 to 24-year-old group, they're really engaged by experience. Yeah. So retailers have got the opportunity to use stores to create those experiences and connect those communities. And so if you look at what some of the retailers are doing now, they're actually focusing on creating a store experience, much like a showroom, which is, which is really a differentiator for brands and stores. So it really comes back to that, that age group is very focused on that personal connection and the, and the store experience as opposed to just clicking online and buying. Yeah, you know, we were talking, I think, last week, Tyler, right, about uh, Toys R Us yeah. and, and why it mm-hmm. might be having some troubles uh, even in this country. Because it it seems to have more of a let's just put them up on the shelves, go and like cellophane come, packages. Ca- yeah, yeah, come and come and buy it, yeah. and as opposed to uh, experiential, uh, uh, you know, uh, almost performance based uh, retail. Kate, is is this yeah. now the pressure that has to be upon a brick and mortar retailer to uh, to make sure that customers coming in have something more than just something to look at, they have something to touch and experience. Absolutely. I mean, I think everybody knows the retail environment is increasingly competitive. So any any um, differentiator you can come up with, any competitive advantage, that is going to be key. So if you look at um, some of the stores that are doing this really well or some of the retailers that are doing this really well, they're creating those in-store experiences that are really aligned with their brands. So some of the local ones that really jump to mind are MEC. You go into that store, you have really well-educated sales staff that can talk to you about the product and the experience, the outdoor experience that you're going to have with that product. Um, Lush is another one. You go in there and it is really an experience when it comes to how the product has been developed, how it's been manufactured, the benefits of that product. Um, and then a wider, you know, wider afield, if you think of something like a, um, a Samsung, they've actually got a space in Soho in Manhattan and they don't actually sell anything. All it is is a showroom, and you can go in there and you can play with virtual reality goggles, you can look at smartphones, you can test all of their products. 
and then you leave that store and you either order them online or you can go over there and you, know, you can have an espresso, you can talk to the sales associates about those products and it really is creating that um, in-store experience and really enhancing the brand. So it's all around differentiation. So it, it must pay back for the retailer, I would suppose, but is it also difficult for a retailer to at first um, accept the fact that a certain amount of floor space, that there's going to be a, a certain different kind of return per square foot uh, in terms of, uh, of the economics of their outfit? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you have to look at a variety of metrics when you're measuring return. Um, and it's no longer just around sales per square foot. You have to look at your metrics combined with your online channel and, um, and, and, and the other revenues you're generating a, a, across the in, entire spectrum. So it really is this omni-channel experience. And you have to continue to make sure that that message is consistent across those individual, cha- across those individual channels. I've been writing a little bit about, say, e-wallets lately, especially with regards to the growing market in the Chinese community here in Vancouver. What trajectory are mobile payments on across retailers here in Canada? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I think we may have talked about this previously, but what we have seen is uh, since 2016, there has been a rise in mobile payments amongst the Canadian consumer. And so now about 33% of Canadian consumers have used mobile payments once and um, about 35% of Canadian consumers actually prefer to pay using mobile. Um, It is behind those consumers in China. If you look at those statistics, I think it's something like 95% of Chinese consumers have used their mobile devices to make a payment within the last year. And um, 77% of Chinese consumers prefer mobile payments to any other method. So what we're seeing is Canadian retailers, they're really embracing technology now. They know it's a disruptor and we're seeing them use technology to better understand their customers. Um, We're seeing them use technology to improve supply chain. We're seeing them use technology to give customers more options. And one of those options is is mobile payment. Yeah. I I know uh, going back to uh, Amazon's original recommendation engine uh, that used to uh, try to tell me what books I might want to read next. uh, (laughs) How much, um, how, how implemented now is AI into the anticipation of where a consumer will go? Uh, It is becoming increasingly important. So we, in addition to this consumer insight survey that we put out, we we do conduct a CEO survey and on an annual basis, and close to 70% of, our, of, of CEOs believe that AI, um, other technologies are going to disrupt their businesses. And as a result, Canadian retailers are really investing heavily in data analytics. They're collecting data, they're looking at um, how we shop, what we buy, where we buy, and they're using that to predict what we're going to buy next. Um, and, and as consumers, it's interesting, we're comfortable with that. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, our survey shows that 44% of consumers are comfortable when retailers actually monitor our, our shopping habits and they're comfortable that they then tailor that information or, or, or use that information to tailor promotions or what we're going to buy next. Yeah. And um, 38% of us actually expect retailers to have up-to-date information on us. But being inside, say, media, um, 
one of the things that has depressed me at times is the feedback loop that you begin to develop when you when you start to basically play on someone's past habits and it doesn't leave open the opportunity for a kind of a serendipitous discovery. Like I never knew I wanted that. I never knew I wanted that. Yeah. I never knew, or I never knew I'd like that article. I, right. you know, I, I like reading this stuff. Uh, is AI at least being flexible enough, Kate, for retailers to put some surprises in front of people? I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think AI is definitely helping retailers um, understand their consumers. Um, in more depth and be able to predict what they want to buy. Um, I think that unpredictability, I, I, I do think, comes through that in-store experience. Um, and I think that's what's um, encouraging consumers to go back to the store, not go back, but continue to visit the store and experience, experience something new and different. And also, uh, it's helpful for me during Christmas time in that January period when I've purchased presents for like my niece and nephew who are like three and like six months old, I, I do get a lot of weird recommendations about stuff that I, I never knew I, I was ever in the market for. So yeah, you, you shouldn't exactly. have bought them. You shouldn't have bought them the automobile accessories. It's <laughs> yeah, exactly. not, really, not really very useful. Exactly. Uh, and that's ultimate. I mean, that, that's what uh, the, the, the retailers like to see as well as they are predicting things that you didn't even know that you wanted to buy, but they're also helping you make easier decisions. So you you might not be familiar with what your nephew or niece wants, but having sure. those recommendations, it's way more convenient. So as a um, an occasional consumer myself, um, I'm also very much swayed by ratings, um, you know, customer ratings and all that. Uh, again, uh, is it possible that like who's going to win here? The the customers that rate something highly, or the machine that says um, this is actually the best product that you want? That's a good question. I um, I would hope it's the consumer uh, in the retail environment. The the consumer comes first. The expectations of the consumers are, are higher than ever, um, and uh, I. I hope that retailers are using this information and the analytics to actually tailor the consumer experience and and um, promote things that the consumer actually actually wants. But yeah. if, if we think about that dichotomy between online shopping and that in-store experience, which is actually proving more popular among younger generations than maybe we suspected, I, just for me personally, I go to, I like going in stores. And then checking out mm -hmm. my phone to look at reviews of products before I actually figure out if I want to get that. Yeah. Am I? Am I being? Am I being an idiot for buying this thing? <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> is this is this the one star product? And it's like, well, exactly. Is this a one star product, or can I get it somewhere else online at a better price? Right. I have to assume like that. That's probably becoming even more common right now. Correct, Kate. That's absolutely more common. I mean, there is so much data out there. The consumer is better educated than they ever have been. And as a result, retailers need to continue to invest in technology and, and, and continue to hire different talent and, and talent that can actually help them address all of these changes and continue to understand their, their customers and consumers. Yeah. Well, excellent. I, I wanted to ask about, uh, though, the, the length of the experience in all this, because we know that with things like advertising, it can take dozens of impressions to essentially mm -hmm. get you to move off to, to go out and buy a product of some sort. Is what you're talking about here with the mixture of a brick and mortar experience and an online facility, is it is it such that we just have to expect 
perhaps that the uh, there's a bit of a long tail here before the the consumer makes up or makes a makes a, a call on what it is that's going to be purchased, and that the store plays a role, but there is this other online side that will close the deal. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that, that's correct. You have a, a bit of a longer tail. There is more information to actually, um, th- there's more un- information to, to understand. There's, there's more information out there. Um, and, and what we're seeing is a lot of consumers will go in store. They will go to the showroom experience. They'll touch, they'll feel, they'll go home, they'll go online, they'll research. And so because there are more avenues to actually touch and um, educate yourself on product, that that tail now is is longer. Um, but what we're what we're finding is when a retailer gets it right with the combination of um, in-store experience, brand, product, um, that really really drives customer loyalty. And the more a retailer can understand a consumer's shopping habits and and, and tailor those experiences, that also increases increases the loyalty. I also went back to a store the other day that had recommended another store to me the last time I was there. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, I thought, you know what? That's, that's, They're honest. that's sophisticated of them. Yeah. And they, I, I, I'm going to develop a greater trust relationship. Yeah, that makes sense. They didn't have really what yeah. I wanted, but they knew a place that did. Uh, I thought that was yeah. good. Yeah. Smart. Well, Kate, as always, pleasure to talk to you. Very fascinating insights today. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks very much. That's Kate Ferber. She's leader of retail and consumer practice in British Columbia over at PwC Canada. New report out from Royal LePage this morning. It reveals that sales and luxury real estate properties in Metro Vancouver, they are falling. But the question is, is whether that's going to have much of an impact on the prices people are paying within this market. And with us to discuss the state of the local luxury real estate market, it is Phil Soper. He's CEO of Royal LePage, calling in from Toronto. Phil, thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. What do these new figures really tell us, though, about the state of the market at the moment, Phil? Well, a couple of things. One, even in the land of extraordinary home prices, uh, there's a limit. And we do get overshooting when markets expand by, say, 10, 15, 20% a year in valuation. You will eventually reach a, a point where the capacity to pay slows down, at least for a while. So I think that's one of the stories that probably gets less ink is that. Uh, affordability is an issue even for rich people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're still going to be price conscious, even like those middle class buyers that we have out there, right? And upper middle exactly. class buyers, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the uh, the uh, federal regulator of banks, the uh, uh, office of the superintendent of financial institutions, instituted uh, their stress test that was predominantly a- aimed at the middle of the market, people who already own their homes. Uh, but they want that we call them move up buyers, and they they said, well, you know, you need to prove you can handle a higher interest rate before you can move up, before you can take on more mortgage debt. And people thought that the impact of that would be limited on the luxury sector, where mortgages are less common, or borrowing is more sophisticated. But in fact, it's a it's an ecosystem, and and uh, if you don't have the middle of the market willing to move into uh, call it entry level luxury, you don't have the ability to get out of your house and buy a more uh, 
more expensive home, a, a luxury home. So, so we're also seeing that we're seeing uh, impacts not just on affordability but on regulatory intervention in the luxury market in uh, in the Lower Mainland. Would you say that we've reached the um, after about seventeen consecutive years of growth that we've reached a bit of the end of the line for the double digit increase? I would hope so. The least healthy real estate markets. I'm sometimes asked or in recent recent years when we were looking at prices rising 25% per annum in West Van, for example. And I was asked what, or I was a reporter would say to me, well, it's a real estate company. You must be delighted. And I said, absolutely not. You know, they, one of the worst markets you can work in is markets where the, there's a great imbalance between the number of buyers and number of sellers because you're either short of property or you're short of buyers. And we've come through a period of very uh, sharply skewed seller's market where inventory levels were at, uh, were at crisis levels in places uh, like Toronto and Vancouver. So more balance to the market and, and flat or single digit price increases are healthier for the industry and certainly uh, give a better shake to both buyer and sellers, uh, people in the market. And yet the, the markets themselves, of course, are so diverse. And we've talked about them repeatedly, uh, you know, among us here. Uh, what were you think are the, the sectors of the housing market in a city like ours that remain superheated and the other ones that have cooled down? Are we looking at the, the decline of the single you know, detached house and, and, uh, and, and that, yeah. that that's no longer uh, an asset that is going to appreciate in value much? I don't think, I think the latter statement was the, the one you made about detached homes not increasing much. It's probably, that one's a, a bit of a stretch. I, I, we hosted a, a banking conference uh, in Toronto uh, last week and had uh, some of the leading economists in the country. And one of the questions uh, we posed to them was, you know, pers- in the end of the discussion, uh, if you have personal money to invest in residential real estate, uh, where would you invest it? And uh, interestingly, the detached home sector, uh, and particularly the detached luxury sector, uh, was one of the places uh, highlighted simply because of scarcity. It's just... Huh really challenging to meet the demand for detached homes. Now, we are going through a bit of a tipping point in Canada right now demographically as baby boomers are finally leaving their large family homes. Uh, It's been a delight process because their kids, the millennials, stayed in school longer, they waited to get uh, start to get married, uh, but that's finally happening. And and, in a recent Royal Page report on what we call the peak millennials, we see this big surge in demand for housing as this group, the largest population group in Canadian history, rolls into the marketplace. And of course, they're, they're vacating family homes and the families are looking at each other and saying, or the couple, the parents, and saying, do we really want this for lifestyle? And so they're moving into condominiums right across the country, uh, not just Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, but uh, Saskatoon and Moncton, uh, we're seeing growth in what we call luxury condominiums. 
And that, that's reflected in this report uh, where we saw the median price of a luxury condominium in the lower mainland rise 7% year over year to 2.5 million. And interestingly enough, that's below the uh, new government's uh, cap for some of the, the, the new punitive tax uh, measures aimed at uh, luxury homeowners. Well, earlier on the show, you mentioned the fact that we have the stress test that was implemented by Ottawa, and there has maybe unexpected consequences on the luxury market here. The question I think that a lot of people have, if you look over the last two governments, both the BC Liberals as well as the current BC NDP, we've seen the introduction of measures to cool markets such as the foreign buyers tax. Are we anticipating, or are we already seeing it, in fact, that there is having an impact on the markets, not just the regular market that the uh, middle class and the upper middle class is getting into, but these luxury homes that you guys are reporting on here? Absolutely. It is It is a completely cyclical ecosystem, the real estate market. And if you, if you do something to hurt the ability of young people to get into the market. You put up barriers for them to enter the market. It it does slow the the trading of real estate right to the very top of the food chain. So they do not the luxury home segment does not operate in isolation. It needs a vibrant middle and in fact a vibrant entry level housing market uh, in order to succeed. And on the margin it helps to have foreign investment. It helps to it, it helps to have uh, low unemployment. It helps to have uh, high consumer confidence, even in the luxury segment, where you'd think perhaps uh, these cash-rich uh, people are, are immune to some of these things. They're not. They're, they're, they didn't become wealthy by not paying attention. And when consumer confidence takes a hit, it tends to take a hit right across the, the entire house, housing sector. So we're going to turn to you, Phil, and and try to help us sort through what is, I think, the central question in a lot of cases uh, in a a market like this, which is, what is the true impact of the foreign buyer? What do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. I turn to back to the original uh, foreign investment tax introduced by the previous government. Uh, It was the first one we saw in Canada. And we know from subsequent audits by regulators that somewhere between five and call it 7% of the transactions at that time were foreign investors across the region. And yet almost immediately after the implementation of that that tax, we saw a 40% decline in transactions. Mm -hmm. So what does that tell you? It tells you measures like foreign uh, foreign investment tax, measures to to put up barriers for a certain buyer group uh, can have widespread effect well beyond the the target audience. So the vast majority of people, almost almost all of the people that stepped out of the market in 2016 when that when that measure was taken. Uh, were domestic buyers. They were local people who said, whoa, uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but it could be bad. And this is just not a time I want to be engaged in the economy. 
So they stood on the sidelines and we saw this uh, precipitous drop in transactions. Now, as often as the case in Vancouver, uh, it didn't take long for them to get their courage back again, about 10 months, and the market was rolling along uh, uh, merrily again. Not like it was previously, but it was rolling along merrily, and then another round, and then another round. And every time uh, there's a series of uh, interventions in the marketplace, it's not the people that it's aimed at that yeah. impacts. It's the wider audience of those whose confidence is uh, shaken. So foreign investors, they're important on the margin, particularly in neighborhoods like West Van or Richmond. Across the overall region, they're a tiny, tiny part of the uh, equation, and, but an important part of the equation. And if you take them out of play, and particularly if you do it in a in a dramatic fashion where consumer confidence is, is uh, impacted, it can have much wider impact. Does, does being in your position, Phil, require you to understand anxiety? <laughs> there, there is, uh, there is over, overzealous exuberation and anxiety at play in real <laughs> estate. Un, unlike, well, I guess, when you, when you think about other kinds of investments, people can get emotionally engaged in investing in Lululemon. You know, they think these are the, these are the best yoga pants I've ever worn. I'm going to invest in this company. It's going to take over the world. And then the fundamentals change, competition rises, and uh, they're disappointed as investors for a while, and probably good management will bring it back. The real estate market's no different, except it, it impacts so many more people. 70% of Canadians own their homes, and even even with young people, our research into millennials show 87% of people in their 20s up to 35 want to own a home, 87%. So they pay attention. And yeah, anxiety and uh, irrational exuberance are both emotions that skew the market up and down uh, well beyond what the fundamentals so when, so when it should be. So when you talk about those that want to get back into it, it's it's more like a momentary pause about a market because of the anxiety about ever getting in. Yeah, no, it, exactly. Which is why Vancouver is our twitchiest market in the country by far. <laughs> twitchiest, if, if, I like that. It's, twitchiest, absolutely. <laughs> we're, the world's most, at, we're the world's twitchiest city. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A little bit of neuroses. Well, there's I, there's I other twitchy cities, but in Canada, we're, we're, we're kind of a, a non-twitchy society. We're a little, little boring that way, except, except on the uh, West Coast. We apologize. We apologize for our twitches. Yeah, yeah. we always, yeah. <laughs> But, but if you look at, you look at, we define uh, luxury not by some arbitrary number, uh, like some of the some of the um, uh, property forecasters do. They'll pick two million or three million or something. We use three times the median value of a home in that, in that uh, region. So call it three times the average home price. That means 5.8 million in Vancouver and 1.9 million in, in Montreal. Yes. So you can get three oh. of the same luxury homes in Montreal for one in Vancouver. Uh, and uh, you can get two in Toronto for one in Vancouver. So Time to, time to polish our French. Yeah, <laughs> we can, exactly. yeah. May we. <laughs> you can get 12 in, in Moncton, by the way. So we'll keep going. Even. Je viens. Uh... <laughs> Moncton is bilingual over there, too. Oh, yeah. No, no, of course. You know what? It is a gorgeous it's... city. It's just, uh, you know, it can be hard to earn a living. It, yeah, a little bit hard. Yeah. 
Well, Phil, I appreciate you putting everything into perspective for us. A very uh, great discussion that we had today. Uh, Thank you for joining us on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, You guys have a great day. That's Phil Soper, CEO of Royal LePage. And that's our program for today. You can tell your friends to subscribe and leave five stars on iTunes. It's going to help us reach even more listeners out there. Meanwhile, you can find our stories at BIB.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. 